So for our guests, we've been walking through Revelation. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. It's a vision that John the pastor has. It's a message, a letter that was sent to seven churches in Turkey. And in places, it's kind of weird. That is a summary of the book of Revelation. We are at Revelation 14, and I want to say to those of you who are doing the Bible study, there's a bit of a divergence here between what the Bible study is working on and what the uh, preaching text will be, because I get to add a couple more weeks, and the Bible study just has 10 weeks to get through the 22 chapters, and so, um, so now you get like double information. There is actually a bonus lesson on uh, Revelation 14, so there are four bonus lessons if you wanted to go all the way to the end of the semester, they're all there online for you as well in case you're that kind of a person or group. Revelation 14, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been redeemed from humankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found. They're blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Then another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice, Those who worship the beast and its image and receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands, They will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image and for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who from now on die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. This is the word of the Lord. My friend Emily met me for lunch this week. And when I opened a door from my office and saw her sitting on that little bench right outside, I could read the grief 
on her face. In July, Emily's dad, Joe, was working as a bailiff in Berrien Springs County Courthouse. And he responded to a distress call. A prisoner who'd been being transferred from one area to another had managed to get a gun. Joe opened the door. The person who was handcuffed took one shot, and Joe was killed. Another bailiff was killed. The shooter was killed. It's been three months. And Emily, who gave me permission to talk about her story with you tonight, is still weighed down, bereft, bereaved. It's the last thing she thinks about before she goes to bed at night. It's the first thing she thinks about when she wakes up in the morning. And she wonders, what if? What if dad had been on the other side of the building? What if he hadn't been the first one there? What if that prisoner had shot just a few inches to the right or a few inches to the left? What if dad hadn't opened that door? And you know, some of you have been in a similar situation where there's this immediate, sudden, traumatic event that just splits your life in two, and your brain is constantly churning, thinking, how do I make this right? How do I figure this out? Because everything about this is all wrong. And the restlessness comes from this deep desire to say, something must be done. Things, these pieces need to be put back together again. And even though you know logically they cannot, it doesn't stop your unconscious from waking you up in the middle of the night. Or from making it impossible to focus during the day. That's what evil does. Evil robs us of our rest. Evil robs us of our peace. Ella DeWine checked in on move-in day when all of the other first-year students were moving in and settling in, and on Thursday, she was diagnosed with cancer and withdrew from Calvin. And those of you who've been following her story know that it's been kind of bumpy. While her long-term prognosis is good, the treatments have been hard, she's had blood clots, they're not sure if they can keep on the same schedule anymore, and her life has been split into before and after. And Ella and her family are wondering, what if? What if the treatments actually don't work? What if the toll that chemotherapy takes on her body is too much and she can't come back to Calvin next semester? What if she gets cleared of cancer now, but five years from now she feels another lump? There will be a restlessness, an uncertainty awaiting for the other shoe to drop in this family forever. 
My friend Natasha, who died of cancer, described cancer as evil on the cellular level. And it comes in and it robs us of peace and it robs us of our rest and it brings into our lives incredible uncertainty. How will this turn out? And those are big things. And some of you have lived big things. You look ahead to Thanksgiving and people are talking about going home for Thanksgiving and all you can think is, I don't know where I'm going for Thanksgiving because this is the first Thanksgiving when mom and dad are not living together. And it churns in you all the time. And then there are those Stresses that just tax us. You have to meet with your advisor and honestly you have no idea what to say. You've been here a year and a half and you still don't know what to say. You've taken a lot of core classes. It's time for you to land the plane. It's time for you to choose a major and you just can't do it. And it's keeping you up at night because you have this pressure. I got to pick the right thing because your major will determine the entire course of the rest of your life. It doesn't. (laughs) But you have this pressure and you feel it. And the voice of the enemy keeps saying, if you get this wrong, your entire life just goes right downhill. So you better get this right. You better stay awake all night worrying about this. Let's avoid all of our homework and just worry about this. The people who first read this letter, the people in the seven churches in Turkey, the people of Thyatira and Pergamum and Ephesus, they knew what it was like to live with restlessness, to live with uncertainty. Last week, Pastor Matt talked about the beast, and that's such a good image of evil. That there's this beast that's hounding you and hunting you and will not let you rest. That is constantly saying, come to me. This is the truth. This is what you need to do. What you are doing is all wrong. Yes, if only things were different, but they're not. Let's just sit and think about that for now. And the beast hunts and hunts and hunts The people who first read this letter, they understood about the beast. They got that image. And not just because they knew it was about Rome and Nero, but they got the idea because it was a daily thing. The beast wasn't far off. It wasn't symbolic for them. The beast meant they could walk to their shop some morning and find that it had been vandalized. The beast meant they could show up for church on Sunday morning and somebody wouldn't be there. The beast meant they could go home from church and find that somebody had let all of their livestock out. The beast hounded them and said, you will not have rest until you bow the knee to the beast. This is the turmoil. This is what's happening. This is what we've had in chapters 12 and chapter 13. And so chapter 14, John says, okay, 
I see the lamb and the 144,000. It's like, yes. If you ever watch the Tolkien movies, Lord of the Rings or the Hobbits, and it's like all the good guys are like running away from the orcs. Like, here's the orcs, here's the good guys. And they get to the edge of the cliff and you're like, oh, this is not going to be good. And then what, what? Eagles. Ah, eagles come in. Right? This is that moment. Revelation 14 is eagles, you know, like as soon as you see like a shadow of flap, you're like, yes, eagles, they're going to get out of this one. That's what this is. The lamb, the 144,000, oh, yes, right, right. We're going to get out of this one. This is great. This is so good. And if you've been worshiping with us and you've been studying Revelation, you know that the Lamb is Jesus Christ. The Lamb is the one who is slain to take away the sin of the world. And the 144,000 is the entire people of God from the beginning of time until its end. The full, complete, beautiful number of the people of God. And we're given some more details here about the 144,000. We're told that they're virgins which has led to some very interesting interpretations over the last 2,000 years. Not, not, not always good, just interesting. But the two really good interpretations of this are this. One, when uh, the Israelites were getting ready for battle, the men who were going off into battle were asked to restrain from sexual intercourse with their wives. There was this idea that you were entering into something holy, entering into something that needed full devotion and also required sacrifice. And so the idea that these 144,000 are virginal has this idea of being elite warriors who are prepared for battle at any moment. The other really good interpretation, which is a wonderful complement to that one, is that throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described when it is disobedient, when it turns away from God, as cheating on God, as being unfaithful, as prostituting itself out to other gods. And so here we have the virginal 144,000, which means that these are totally devoted. These are the people of God who have been faithful the whole time. They have not been seduced by the beast. We're told in this great line, that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. And this doesn't mean like, here's the lamb and here's 104,000. It means that they are living the lives that that the lamb has called them to live. So everything in the Sermon on the Mount, they're living it out. Loving their enemies, they're living it out. Giving to other people, they are living it out. Sharing with them, they're doing it all. They are laying themselves out. They are doing what the Lamb has asked them to do. They are following the Lamb wherever He goes. We're told that they are redeemed, that they are the first fruits, that there's more to come. There's more goodness to come for this group. And then the final descriptor for them, it says that they don't lie, that they're blameless. This is a really intentional description because Satan is described as the father of lies. In earlier chapters in Revelation, he's called the deceiver. And so this is to say very clearly that the people of God are nothing like that. The people of God know truth, love truth, speak truth. That's the people of God. 
And so the lamb and the 144,000 appear on the seed, and it's like, yes, good. And then the angel says, I got some gospel for you. Let me give you some gospel. The angels come on in. Yeah, let's hear some gospel. That would be great. Angel number one, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Great. Okay. Um, Our normal gospel is something along the lines of God created the world. It fell into sin. Jesus died to save us. Jesus will come back. Like that's kind of gospel. But this this is good. This is good. Fear God. Give him glory. The hour of his judgment has come. That, 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 that fits. That's good. Second angel. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. What? She's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Give me an amen. <laughs> it's like, how? What? Um, how is that gospel? How's that good news? Babylon was an ancient empire, and about 600 years before Christ was born, it just absorbed the nation of Israel, as it had absorbed so many other nations. And when Babylon absorbed you, it was like Borg, right? Resistance was futile, and you just became one of them. Star Trek reference, for those of you who did not get that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Resistance was futile. They would make you eat what they ate. They would make you wear what they wear. They wanted you to drink what they drank. They wanted you to worship what they worshiped. A great example of this is found in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Very good. Yes. Because Daniel is somebody who says no, which is why there's a whole book about him. All the people who said yes, they didn't get books. That's Babylon. Babylon just swallows you whole. And Babylon was known for wickedness. It was known for cruelty. It was known for immorality. It was known for luxury. There was a small number of people who would just take the wealth of all of these nations that they conquered and they would just enjoy it themselves. And they practiced immorality before their gods. This is where the fertility cults developed. And having sex with a prostitute as an act of worship, like, it was just an incredibly wicked society. I mean, imagine a society where a small group controls a lot of the wealth and where having sex with anybody anytime you wanted is just considered a right. Imagine a society like that, <laughs> if you can. So Babylon has been viewed as a symbol of just everything that is wrong with institutions, everything that has gone wrong, and she is the one who seduces everybody else to follow her. And that's why it says, she's made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. You see, anybody who knew the Old Testament really well, all the Jews that were in these churches, they would have known that time and time again, the wrath of God is expressed like, in a cup. I'm not sure why. Nobody gave me good information on this. If one of you wants to write a paper, that would be very helpful to me. Uh, Why the wrath is in a cup, I don't really know, but it's in a cup again and again. Here's the wrath of God. Drink it. Here's the wrath of God. Drink it. And so this is a reference to all of those times when the wrath of God is given out. And now it says, look, she seduced everybody into her whoring. That's really what this is. She seduced everybody into it, and now she's going to drink it. It's all going to come back to her. Everything that she has done will destroy her. 
fallen as Babylon. Now, the good news in that for the people who first read this was that Babylon was code for them for Rome. This idea that someday the luxuries and the immoralities and the vanity of Rome would do, it in, do itself in, which happened. It just took a few more hundred years. So there's this idea that the great evils of the world will come down. That's the truth of gospel. The great evils of this world will come down. Whether the thing that is seducing us into evil is a nation, is a king, is a president, or whether the thing that is seducing us into evil is a cable channel, is a website, it will be destroyed. It will be destroyed. Whether it's North Korea or Netflix, the things that are seducing us toward evil, the things that are seducing us away from the one true God will be destroyed. Here's a third part of the gospel. Those who worship the beast and its image and receive a mark on their foreheads, they also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image and for anyone who receives the mark of its name. And this is something that we want to pull back from a little bit and say, well, that, that can't be, like, that can't be the thing that happens. Like, is that literal? Like, at the end of time, will everybody who has been against the one true God, like, at the end of time, will they actually be tormented and burning in soul fire pits? Like, is that literal? It's not literal, I don't think. But it's real. It's true. Those who have been seduced, those who have been pulled away, will suffer an eternal misery will suffer an eternal punishment. And we really like to do a quick corrective here and say, well, that doesn't sound very Jesus-y. I think, well, have you looked at what Jesus said? He talked more about hell than just about anybody else. He was very clear that there are choices that have to be made and that your choice reflects your loyalty. There's no neutrality here in Revelation 14. Either you worship the beast and you have the mark of the beast or you worship the lamb and you have the mark of the lamb. There's no middle ground. It's not I worship the beast Monday, Wednesday, Friday and I'm with the lamb Tuesday, Thursday and Sunday is kind of take all. No, there's no neutrality here at all. Now how is this good news at all? This is news that kind of makes us anxious because we are very aware that we're evil. We are very aware of our sin. So the good news comes at the very beginning with the first angel who says, fear God, give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. 
And because we have been written in the Lamb's book of life, because the name of the Lamb is on us, we are protected from the wrath of God, as we have been talking about for the last couple of weeks. That the punishment that we deserve is gone. And here is why this is good news. Because God's judgment means that someday Emily will have justice. God's judgment means that someday Ella and her family will never worry about cancer again. God's judgment means that the person who abused you will be held accountable if he or she does not repent. God's justice means the person who assaulted you will be held accountable if they do not repent. God's justice means the one who betrayed you will be held accountable. The one who hurt you will be held accountable. The ones who crush the poor will be held accountable. The ones who crush God's creation will be held accountable. God's justice means that anyone who has been seduced by Babylon, has gone over to the beast, has been drawn into the darkness, every one of them will be held accountable. And we won't be looking at this for a little bit, but in Romans 6, Revelation 16, the bowls of God's wrath are given, and every time they're given a chance to repent, God's judgment means... Justice is coming. Justice is coming. And we're not innocent. But because of the blood of Christ, we are righteous. And he claims us. And we are part of the 144,000 The gospel is that God's on the move. God's justice is coming. This little section here says that God is always up to something. God is always working toward justice. God is always working to make things right. God is working to take those pieces that get blasted apart in a moment and put them back together again. But the question we ask is when? When? When will Emily's life be put back together again? When will Ella's life be put back together again? When will your life be put back together again? When exactly, God? This reminds me of the story in the Gospels when two disciples of John the Baptist go to see Jesus. John is in prison. And the disciples go to see Jesus and they say to him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another one? And what they're asking is, are you the Messiah for real or is there somebody else who's gonna show up? And Jesus says, go back to John and tell him what you see. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. But then he says this. 
Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. Now, why does he say that? There's a lot of good Messiah things he's doing in that section. But there's one he doesn't say, and it's one that John, being in jail, would have noticed. The job of the Messiah was also to set people free. And so in his code message back to John, he is saying to him, yes, I am the Messiah, and you will die in jail. Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. Because Jesus is very aware that the timeline of God's vengeance is not the timeline of ours. Jesus is very aware of the struggles of people who have to wait and long and cry out, which is why the next verse says this is a call for endurance for the saints. For endurance for the saints who hold to the commandments and hold fast to the truth of Jesus. Endurance. Endurance is not pretty. I don't know how many of you have ever watched the end of a marathon. And I'm not talking about like the last half a mile when everyone's just giddy to finally be across the line. I'm talking like about five miles before the end. When the people are like, I've run 20 miles and you're telling me I have to go how far? Are you kidding me right now? And they got the spittle, right? They got the spittle and if it's warm, they got the salt like staining their clothing. And their body is only able to do this. So when you're like, yeah, go, hey, all they can do is move their eyeballs. Right? Endurance is not pretty. And the beauty of being part of the 144,000 is that you've got other people who can help you endure. And I'm going to say, let's stop asking people to look pretty. If you're trying to figure out what God is up to in your life, step up. Ask for help. There are people in our community that Emily has been leaning on because they know what it's like to lose a parent. There are students in our community that Ella is leaning on because they know what it's like to be a student with cancer. And it's not pretty. If you're suffering, if you're hurting, stop trying to make it be pretty. How are you today? Great. Really? Endurance isn't pretty, gang. But it's what we're called to. And Jesus didn't do the one thing John the Baptist was really hoping he would do, but he did a whole bunch of other really good things. And Jesus isn't going to go back in time and undo the traumatic events of July 11 that took Emily's dad. And he's not going to go back in time and undo the cancer cells that sprung up in Ella's life. But he is providing for them right now. Emily described grief like having a big hole in your life. And first you sit and you just kind of look at the hole and you can't believe you have a giant hole in your life. And then slowly you kind of get up and you start to move and the hole doesn't go away, but you're able to observe it, know it's there without falling into it anymore. And what helps grieving people start to do that is other grieving people. People who are just a little bit ahead. 
Why was it such a joy for John to look up and see the lamb and the 144,000? Because it was a reminder that he was not alone on that little island in exile from his people, longing to be back from them. And the word comes to him first. You are not alone. You are part of 144,000. God is at work. God is on the move. Justice is coming. Endure, endure, endure. Hang in there, John. Hang in there, church. And then there's this beautiful promise at the very end of the passage. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. And I love this. It's like, okay, you've just been paying attention. You've observed, like, get, get a pen right now. Get a pen. Like, this goes down. This, this is important. Write this. Blessed are the dead who from now on die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And did you notice in 11 that part of the torment for the people with the mark of the beast is that they have no rest? They have no rest. And the gift that is offered to the people of God is that you will have rest because justice is on the move and judgment is being served and vengeance is the Lord's. And every now and then we just get a glimpse of that kind of Sabbath wedding feast, all is right with the world rest. That's what it means to be part of the 144,000. We invite each other into rest. We invite each other into peace. We invite each other into the confidence of knowing that our God is up to something even when we can't see it. Rest is a gift from our God. Don't let evil take it away. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Find rest. Find rest. Receive the rest of our God.